<clears throat> so this afternoon, in the second of these two talks, I'm going to focus on the question of self. And in the handout, there's not actually much on that, so I'm going to actually work with some other texts that um, uh, you don't have. But having said that, you can go on to um, my website, stephenbatchelor.org, which has recently been uh, revamped. And there's a menu under Stephen called Study Tools. And that has this entire collection of texts that I'm speaking from, and you can download it, uh, as well as a reading list. So everything that I read from uh, will be up there available. I want to start with what is almost a slogan in the early Buddhist uh, tradition. And this is the phrase that was uttered by um, a man called Kondanya on hearing the Buddha's first sermon. Kondanya was the elder of the five ascetics to whom the Buddha began to teach after the awakening. And having heard the Buddha's presentation of the four noble truths, which we don't have time to get into this, which I prefer to call the four noble tasks, he, he utters this phrase, uh, yam kinchi samudayam dhammam tam sabang nirodam dhammam, which for once you can render more economically in English as simply whatever arises ceases. A few months later when the Buddha and his first followers went to Rajagaha, the main city of Magadha, and Sariputta, who subsequently became the Buddha's foremost disciple in a way, when he was told about what the Buddha taught, he also responded by uttering the same phrase, Ah, whatever arises, ceases. It's very cryptic, and yet somehow the early tradition recognized that as a, as a pithy encapsulation of what this teaching was about. If we reflect on it a bit, it strikes me that this is a description in a way or a reflection upon the rhythm of life itself. The rising and the falling of a wave, the breaking of a wave on a beach, and the water arising to a certain point, pausing, and then withdrawing. Or we can see this process at work in each breath. The in-breath arises, pauses for a moment, is breathed out, and ceases. We can feel it uh, in the rhythm of the heartbeat, of the expansion and the contraction of the, of the ventricles, the valves of the heart, arising, 
pausing, ceasing, arising, pausing, ceasing. So very much I feel what struck people in that early time was a teaching that referred not to something transcendent or absolute, but rather to a whole new way of being in this world with the rhythms of life itself. There's a passage again in the Sangyutta Nikaya, uh, 54.11, where the Buddha is asked by his uh, followers what they should tell people who come up to them and say, well, what does he do when he's in these three-month rains retreats? And the Buddha replies, you should tell them during the three-month rains residence, he generally dwells in concentration through mindfulness of breathing. If one could truly say of anything, this is a noble dwelling, this is a divine dwelling, this is a Tathagata's dwelling, it is of concentration through mindfulness of breathing that one could say this. Once again, I find this a passage that is slightly surprising. That the Buddha himself, in these retreats, remains simply aware of the arising and the passing of each breath. In fact, he calls it a, a divine dwelling, which is a translation of Brahma Vihara, which we usually think of as love, compassion and so on. But here we find the same phrase to describe simply sitting and being aware of the arising and the passing or ceasing of each breath. One might, of course, have expected the Buddha to be doing something a little bit more advanced. <laughs> and perhaps that's what this passage is trying to um, trying to. Uh, expose this expectation that he's doing something really exotic. Whereas in fact, he too just remains with the breath, which is to remain with the primary rhythm of our own life and our primary relationship with the world of which we are a part. It's how we connect, how we draw in oxygen that allows us to live and survive. So to really settle into a deeply intimate awareness of that rhythm, that perhaps is the ground of the whole practice, sorry, the whole cultivation <laughs> of the path. Now there's another, another text that um, again hinges on exactly the same two words. And these two words are samudaya, which means arising, and niroda, which means ceasing. But this is a text where the Buddha is asked by someone called uh, Kachanagota, who says, Venerable Sir, we say right view, right view. 
which I prefer to translate as complete seeing, complete seeing. In what way is there complete seeing? And the Buddha replies, This world, Kachana, for the most part depends on a duality, upon the notion of there is and the notion of there is not. But for one who sees the arising of the world as it happens with complete intelligence, there is no notion of there is not in regard to the world. And for one who sees the ceasing of the world as it happens with complete intelligence, there is no notion of there is in regard to the world. Everything is, Kachana, this is one dead end. Nothing is, Kachana, this is another or the other dead end. Without veering towards either of these dead ends, the Tathagata teaches the Dhamma by the middle. Now this is, a, again, quite a, a dense uh, passage. But it serves very clearly, I feel, to show how the Buddha's teaching, uh, this right view or this complete vision, is one that avoids declarations such as it is or there is, attita. But it equally avoids the uh, position of it is not, there is not. In, either, in other words, affirmation or negation. So once one observes with mindful awareness or what, what he calls uh, samapanya, right intelligence or complete intelligence, the arising of the world, when we witness the world arising, then there's no way you can say it is not. There is nothing there. And when we observe the world or experience uh, passing and ceasing, there is no possibility of saying it exists, it is. So this is a middle way between being and non-being existence and existence. It's a recognition, I feel, that the categories, the primary categories of language are incapable of capturing the fluid, changing, contingent nature of our actual felt experience. Language just can't capture that. It can't deal with that. Perhaps poetry gets as close as we ever will, or music. But the grammar of our languages are premised on is, is not. You know, the law of the excluded middle of Aristotle. Something either is A or it's not A. Here we have a very clear account of experience that reveals the incapacity of our conceptual, linguistic, uh, 
phrases and words to uh, adequately express the rhythm of the rising and the ceasing of life itself. And this opens up what the Buddha calls a middle way. So the middle way is not just a middle way between sensory indulgence and self-mortification, but it's also a middle way between is and is not. And if you insist on a view of the world that is premised on this is the nature of what is, or on a view of the world that says um, ultimately there is nothing at all, you have veered into what the Buddha calls an anta. Usually this is translated as extreme, the two extremes. But the word anta literally means an end. And since it's a word associated with mara, the demonic, the killer, antaka means the one who enforces ends, that's a, a description of mara, one who imposes limits, then anta is a dead end. So the middle way is not exactly one that avoids extremes, but rather a middle way is in fact the only way a way can be. <laughs> if you miss it, you end up at a dead end. A middle way, therefore, is a, a way of expressing the ongoing open-ended fluidity of life experience as such. And the way the Buddha then further teases that out is what we saw this morning of this interdependence between Nama, Rupa and consciousness. That's, as it were, the matrix in which this reflection about a middle way between being and non-being, between a, observing a rising and ceasing takes place. It's also worth pointing out that this passage, which is in the, in the, the Sangyutta Nikaya again, 12.15, is the only text that is cited by name in Nagarjuna's uh, verses from the center. This is the core, this is the explicit uh, uh, source for the whole philosophy that is called Madhyamaka, the middle way philosophy, and the whole idea of emptiness. But again, I think emptiness as a term often creates more problems than it solves. The Buddha rarely uses the term. And even Nagarjuna is very much aware of its problematic nature. He says, for example, Buddhas say that emptiness is letting go of opinions. Believers in emptiness are incurable. <laughs> in other words, if you set up emptiness as a sort of you know, non-being or nothingness, that actually is slipping into a dead end that emptiness is rather an emptying. It's basically a way of talking about a letting go, a letting go of the idea of being, a letting go of the idea of non-being, and experientially opening oneself to the unfolding of life itself. And the meditation of being with the breath 
I feel is, in a sense, the very ground of such an experience. Because that is the breath. The breath is arising and ceasing. You can't define it where it stops, where it starts, any more than you can define where a wave starts or a wave stops or the heartbeat starts or the heartbeat stops. Conventionally, yes, we can say there's the wave and there's the trough, there's the in-breath, there's the out-breath. But when we settle into a contemplative awareness and attention to these processes, those distinctions become increasingly arbitrary and tentative. Useful, perhaps, but not actually capable of articulating the living experience itself. Recently, I also came across a couple of passages from uh, Michel de Montaigne, the uh, French essayist of the, I think, the 16th century. He says, why do we give the title of being to this instant that is nothing but a flash of lightning in the infinite course of eternal night? And another passage, if by chance you apply your, th your thought to wanting to seize its being, that will be neither more, no more nor less than wanting to grab hold of water with your hand. Montaigne considered himself to be a follower of the Greek philosopher Piro of Elis, who traveled with Alexander to India in the 5th century BC, just 70 years after the Buddha's death. And Piro, from Greek records, studied with the sages of India and returned to Greece and founded the school that we now call Skepticism. <laughs> That's a bit of a digression, but one that I'm quite interested in. And I feel that there are, there is in a sense at least a hint of this way of seeing things, which is very close to the Madhyamaka philosophy that finds its way through Piro into um, Montaigne, and then later into Nietzsche. Nietzsche, uh, in The Will to Power, says that Piro was a Greek, but a Buddhist, <laughs> even a Buddha. <laughs> so anyway, what's all of this got to do with the self? I think it has an awful lot to do with the self. Because one of the... Uh, we, and this came up in the little go-round we had earlier on. Buddhism is reputed to believe that there is no self. And the word anatta is almost invariably translated as no self. And we find in, in many presentations of the Dharma that the aim of meditation is to experience oneself as just uh, physical, mental, emotional processes, but there is no self there at all. There is literally no self. So how does this escape what in the discussion with Kachanagota would be an extreme or the dead end of it is not? 
Well, let's go to um, another passage, another discussion, uh, this time between Mr. Gautama and Vachagota. Vachagota is another Indian wanderer of the time who's always coming up and asking the Buddha difficult questions. <laughs> so he's a very useful foil for the Buddha's um, teaching. So Vachagota asks, How is it, Mr. Gautama? Is there a self? The Buddha remains silent. Then how is it, Mr. Gautama? Is there not a self? The Buddha again remains silent. Vachagota got up from his seat and went away. This wasn't very fruitful discussion. <laughs> Ananda, who was the Buddha's attendant, asked him, well, why didn't you, you say something? And the Buddha replied, if I had answered there is a self, this would have been siding with those who are eternalists. And if I had answered there is not a self, that would have been siding with the nihilists. So here we have a, a passage in which the Buddha quite clearly is not willing to say that there is or that there is not a self. Recently translators have started rendering anatta as not-self, which might sound like a semantic distinction, but actually I don't think it is. It's a, it's a practical instruction to recognize that what occurs, that rises and passes away in your experience, whether it be physical or mental or affective or emotional or whatever, is not me or mine. That's what's actually being said. It's not a metaphysical declaration, there is no self which unfortunately is often how that's understood. But it's to notice the actual uh, fabric of lived experience is something that is constantly in flux, it's changing, it's anicca. It is dukkha in the sense that it's ultimately something you can't rely upon to provide eternal well-being. And it is anatta in the sense that there's nothing within these processes that you can point to and say, that's what I really am, that's me. So you meditate, and this is the meditation of vipassana, to notice these, these features of experience that we tend to ignore or even deny. So the opening up the world as nama, rupa, vijnana that are interdependent, that are continuously unfolding and ceasing, we also open ourselves up to the possibility of appreciating and, and really, in a sense, having a direct uh, felt experience of there not being me. But that does not mean that I don't exist. 
That's the crucial bit. And this is something that was hammered into me as a young monk uh, from the very beginning of my involvement with uh, Tibetan Buddhism. In the Gelupa school in which I was trained, there's almost emphasis ad nauseam on the dangers of what is called negating too much in the theory of emptiness. In other words, you have to be very clear about what you mean when you say not-self. That it doesn't mean that there is no one there at all. But you have to be careful also not to slip into the other dead end of not negating enough and holding on to some little something or other that is an eternal, permanent, lasting, essential me. The middle way lies between those two dead ends, which is exactly what we find both in the passage with Kachanagota and with the dialogue with Vachagota. And that's all very well. But is there anywhere where we find uh, the Buddha presenting a more positive account of how he understands um, who we are. What is this self? And we do. Someone mentioned uh, something I'd written in the write-up, that the self for the Buddha is a project to be realized, not a, a state to be affirmed or denied. So I'd like to explain what I mean by that. Part of this problem is that as Buddhism became an established religion, it tended towards adopting an an orthodox metaphysics. The self does not exist. The mind and the body are two separate things etc., 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 and the aim of meditation is sometimes felt to be getting to a state where your mind accords or corresponds to the reality of things, the truth of things. And when your mind corresponds or accords with the truth, and the truth being what Buddhism or what our version of Buddhism maintains it to be, then you are enlightened. But this, I think, is a a big mistake. I don't think the Buddha, as I mentioned this morning, is interested in ascertaining what is the nature of truth. He's interested in finding a way of being in this world that avoids all kinds of metaphysical truth claims and instead gives one a framework within which to act and do something. So the Four Noble Truths are really Four Noble Tasks. And as a very welcome confirmation of this this view that I've had for some time, I recently read a text, a a study of the first sermon by a man called K.R. Norman, who's probably the world's leading expert on Indo-Aryan Prakrits. Prakrits are idiomatic languages, spoken languages, as opposed to Sanskrit, which is a constructed language. Pali is is an Indo-Aryan Prakrit. It's a spoken language, a natural language. 
And Norman's analysis of the first sermon concludes, and I'm quoting from memory, um, in the original text of the Buddha's first sermon, the word Aryang Satyang, noble truth, did not occur. It was rather inexpertly interpolated later. And you can see this through, admittedly, a rather technical analysis of the grammar and syntax of the Pali. So it seems that this, this, this urge to somehow be able to claim truth was a later addition. And it's again interesting, as I mentioned already, nowhere in the canon do you find the words absolute truth and relative truth. And I feel that we could probably present the Dhamma without ever having to use the word truth and thereby getting to a state of mind that corresponds to the truth. <laughs> and as soon as you set up a truth claim, you're basically saying, I'm right, you're wrong. You set up the division between the, be the believers and the heretics. And much of religious discourse is premised upon truth claims. And that, I feel, sets up the beginnings of all division. I recently read a book by the Italian philosopher Gianni Vattimo, who says, um, as soon as the word truth is uttered, a uh, it casts a shadow of violence. Truth and violence, we don't normally think of them in the same breath. But in some ways, as soon as you make a truth claim, you are opening up, you, you've set the stage for opposition, right, wrong, true, untrue, belief, unbelief. And, as, and I don't have to explain this in any detail, but how much of the history of <coughs> violence in our world is premised upon those who believe that they've got the truth versus those who don't. Anyway, that was a bit of a digression. The, the point I'm trying to get to is that if we drop this whole way of thinking about the Buddha trying to tell us what the truth is, and instead recognize that he's seeking to open up our experience in a way that gives us something to do, then I feel we're in a much better position to understand what he means by self. And we get out of this dichotomy of there is a self or there is not a self. No self versus self, which is a false distinction and one that's premised on a metaphysical view rather than a pragmatic view, something to cultivate. And I think the most beautiful way in which the Buddha illustrates this understanding is in verse 80 of the Dhammapada where he says, just as a farmer irrigates his field, just as a fletcher fashions an arrow, just as a carpenter shapes a piece of wood, Attanam Dhammati Pandita, the sage tames the self. Now it's sometimes felt that the Buddha didn't even use the word self in a remotely positive way. And Western translators are very wary 
of using the S word <laughs> in Buddhism. But here you have, uh, I mean, I, I came across, I must have read this verse a number of times, but I came across it also in my Pali reader, you know, Pali for dummies. <laughs> and what really struck me was that the word utter, self, was used in the accusative singular, which means it as the direct object of the verb. In the same way that the field is the direct object of the farmer's irrigation, the arrow, the direct object of the fletcher's fashioning, and so on. Whereas almost invariably, in English translation, uh, this last line is rendered, so the sage tames himself. Now, it's a subtle distinction, but effectively it does not acknowledge the, 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 the grammar um, of the text. It turns the word self into a reflexive function of the verb, tames himself, rather than as the direct object of the verb, the sage tames the self. Now, I don't think either trans I don't, don't think that translation is wrong per se. In fact, it's more euphonous in English. But it compromises the integrity of the original. So what the Buddha's pointing to here is that what he calls the self, and self is used here absolutely non-problematically. It's not self and inverted commas. It's atta, attanam. And the utter, who we are, in other words, me and you, we are like a field. We are like an arrow. We are like a block of wood. And the task with the self, with ourselves, with you, with me, is to irrigate the self, to fashion the self, to shape the self. So in other words, the self is not existent or non-existent. It's neither is nor is not, but it is something that is in a constant process of becoming. It's a task or a project to be realized, not something to be affirmed or denied. So it puts the whole um, emphasis on self as an element within a process of doing something rather than something to either negate or to find existing in some eternal realm. It's outside of metaphysics. It's a practical instruction to live your life in a certain way. Now, when we unpack that metaphor or those metaphors, the implication is that for much of our lives, for many people perhaps, it feels as though we are barren fields, that we're not really, um, we, we do not, in a sense, flourish as fully as we could. And perhaps people who are drawn to Buddhist practice or any kind of religious or spiritual practice often are, are drawn into this because of a sense that something in their lives is lacking. There's something we don't feel fulfilled. We don't feel as somehow that our potential is realized. 
we feel perhaps that we're just going round and round in circles, that we might have achieved something in our work or in our family life or uh, whatever it might be, achieved a degree of maybe recognition or, or status or something, but it then dawns on us that actually we haven't really achieved much at all, maybe in certain conscribed environments. But there's something within ourselves that's still really not fulfilled at all. I've often found this with, with people who have lived a very successful working life and retire, only to find that in retirement, rather than now having the time to do all the things they'd been putting off all their lives, find that in fact the, their lives have become very empty, and I don't mean that in a Buddhist sense. <laughs> And there's a certain, it's not just a, a sense of, 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 of emptiness. You don't have any standing in the world anymore. You've got nothing to do. You also find that you don't really have much of a resource in the culture or in your own experience on which to draw, on which to really um, learn new ways of flourishing within your innermost being rather than within the context of your working or your social existence. So in some ways, therefore, what the practice is about, what the cultivation, and again, cultivation, irrigating a field. This is a metaphor from an agrarian society. A field that has not been irrigated, that has not had channels carved into it that allow water to flow, is a field that can't really produce a crop. And the, the practice of mindfulness and awareness and, and the other virtues that Buddhism extols is in some senses like a process of irrigation. You're opening up new channels within your life so that your responsiveness becomes more and more naturally to pay attention, to investigate perhaps the characteristics of impermanence and so on to be more loving and kind in your response to others' suffering. All of these practices and these disciplines, which are hard work and not things you can just do overnight, but over time begin to open up other ways of uh, living, other ways of being in the world with others. The image of an arrow. An arrow is something that is fashioned from different elements, from a pointed head, a shaft, which is nice and straight, and then the fletch, the, the, the feathers that are stuck in the end to give the arrow its uh, capacity to fire directly onto its target. So in what sense is, are, are our lives sometimes like wonky arrows? Or sometimes we have all sorts of arrows going off in all sorts of directions. Mm -hmm. To me it's a metaphor of um, integration, of bringing the energies of our life together so that we can focus ourselves on the realization of what matters most for us in this life. And again, that doesn't have to be reduced to some spiritual experience. But I think the Eightfold Path is actually, again, 
bringing into alignment the different areas of our existence from the way we see things and think about them and how we communicate and how we act and how we work. These are like the different elements of the arrow that we seek to integrate into a way of human flourishing, as is sometimes now term used, drawing, again going back to Aristotle, eudaimonia, of, of, of well-being, of, of um, in a sense realizing what as a person we can become. And then the idea of the carpenter shaping a piece of wood. Uh, again, starting out as a sort of rough block of wood which has no particular utility or value, but through shaping and carving and working with it, we begin to shape and carve and fashion the distinctiveness of our own person. And again, there's this odd idea sometimes that Buddhist practice sort of turns you into a kind of robot or something, a selfless um, automaton. And that's the literal implication of having no self. Whereas here the idea is actually by, by shaping, directing, irrigating and fashioning your life, you actually begin to emerge as uh, an increasingly distinctive person. And again, not suggesting that there's some sort of final state that you reach, but rather your life begins to flow, begins to, in a sense, become energized. Uh, just think again of the idea of, um, of stream entry, uh, a, a very well-known term in, in Buddhist practice, particularly in the Theravada school, that the first moment of awakening is compared to entering a stream. And this entering a stream is again, I think, a very powerful and beautiful image of a life that's now flowing rather than a life that is somehow stuck and blocked. And Mara, remember, is defined as that which blocks us. We talk about the hindrances, attachment, aversion, lethargy, restlessness, doubt. These are basically forces that impede the natural unfolding and flow of being really alive. So we have, I think, here many uh, uh, passages and teachings that suggest that uh, this is really a philosophy about um, learning to flourish as a person. It's not a philosophy of realizing that there's no person at all. <laughs> it's rather the opposite. And again, it's practical rather than theoretical. It's something that we have to do. We can't expect some grace from some deity to re somehow resolve these questions for us. We need to set out and do something. Another feature of stream entry that we don't often hear about, but we find in a number of texts, is the Buddha says, the person who has entered the stream has become aparapachaya, which means independent of others become autonomous. That the purpose of a, of a kalayanamita, of a, of, a, of a teacher, 
literally a good friend, is to help us enter the stream. The stream means the Eightfold Path, by the way. The person who is our good friend, who is the teacher, is not there to establish a dependency upon him or her, but actually to help us enter the Eightfold Path and thereby to become autonomous in our practice. I find all of this very, uh, very affirming. It's a very positive vision of life. And yet it requires, and this is another feature of stream entry, um, the loss of what's called Sakaya Diti, um, the view of individuality it's sometimes translated as. It's difficult to translate it. It literally means, Sakaya means the whole body, Diti, view. What it means in ordinary English is egoism. So in other words, the, the person who becomes independent of others, the person who enters the stream, who cultivates his field or her field, at the same time lets go of the fixed obsession about being a detached and permanent ego. And again, I don't think this experience is so uh, high and spiritual and remote. I think many of us, maybe all of us in this room, have had moments in our lives where the, the fiction of being a detached entity has somehow faded. It may be once we're in nature, perhaps, communion with the natural world. It could be when we fall in love. Or it could be through meditative experience. We, we experience our body, our mind, our feelings, our emotions, and we really recognize there is nothing in that that I can point to and say, that's the real me. For Tsongkhapa, uh, of the, the Tibetan Lama Tsongkhapa, um, to experience uh, this is called, he understands as experiencing the unfindability of me. There's nothing, and the, the, when the Dalai Lama teaches this, he says, There's nothing you can put your finger on. There's no finger-putting place. In other words, the more you look deeply into your experience, the more you realize that there's nothing to which you can sort of stop and say, ah, there I am. There is no being and there's no non-being. It's exactly the same idea of Nagarjuna and the Buddha, that the experience of emptiness or emptying is basically an opening to what we might call the infinity of things. There's a kind of infinite... Um, openness in which there's neither something nor nothing that language and concept can't catch uh, the, 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 the endless openness and contingency of our life. And that's, in Madhyamaka philosophy, uh, the most liberating experience. Mm -hmm. That then opens up the possibility of becoming who we could be. And in, in Gelugpa orthodoxy, I don't completely reject orthodoxies. In fact, I'm a bit of an orthodox Gelugpa in some ways. <laughs> in Gelugpa orthodoxy, this, this lack of an intrinsically existent me is what they call Buddha nature. 
Buddha nature is not some Buddha hidden inside you somewhere trying to get out. <laughs> but it's uh, the, the absence of anything uh, fixed that inhibits you from changing, from evolving, from learning, from growing, from irrigating, and so on. And just to conclude, I think it's also worth pointing out that the Buddha's vision was not just about personal development, as we might call it today, but also was very much about um, uh, a transformation of society. So if we go back to the handout, you'll find in the handout, by the way, the, the passage from the Dhammapada, and then I jump to another one. This is a passage from the Udana, this code UD, U-D, uh, means Udana, which is one of the smaller texts collected in the Kudaka Nikaya along with the Dhammapada and the Sutta Nipata and others. This is the Buddha's image of his teaching as being like an ocean. And he says... Just as whatever great rivers there are, the Ganges, the Yamuna, the Achiravati, the Sarabhu, and the Mahi, on reaching the great ocean, they lose their former names and identities and are just called the great ocean. So also those of the four castes, nobles, Brahmins, merchants and workers, having gone forth from home to the homeless state in the Dhamma and discipline, abandon their former names and identities and are just called recluses, the followers of the Sakyan son. Now one might think that again this is um, a, a metaphor of um, no self, but it's not. It's a metaphor of how what we are is not determined by our position at birth. It's a critique of the Indian class system. So in other words, rather than thinking of oneself as a, a Brahmin or a noble or whatever, and again, in Indian thought, it's, you know, this, this is an identity that is given by God, that as in the Indian, the Upanishadic vision of creation, um, there arises this Hiranyagarbha, this egg on the ocean of being, that then appears as the Mahapurusha, the great man, person. And from the head are born the Brahmins, from the arms, the rulers, from the body, the merchants, and the legs, the workers. And if you are born as a worker, then your dharma, and again the Buddha doesn't use the word dharma in this way at all, your dharma is to fulfill your duty as, an, as being an integral part of this divinely structured society. That's your duty. In the Bhagavad Gita, for example, you have Krishna coming down to talk to Arjuna, who's a warrior. And, and Arjuna says, I don't want to go into battle and kill my relatives. And Krishna says, sorry, mate, that's your duty. And um, here the Buddha seems to be saying, or is saying, that in the Dhamma and the discipline, uh, what falls away, is in fact your class identity, what you were born as. Now, what does that mean for us today? 
I think perhaps it's not, we don't live in such a rigidly class society. In fact, America prides itself on being, um, having left all that behind, but I don't think, in reality, the conditions under which we are born very often define what's expected of us by our parents, by our educators. Um, and if we don't live out what our parents very liberally aspire for us, we're somehow failing. I don't think this is great news somehow. So in other words, there is, I feel, very much an injunction here to free yourself from whatever expectations you may have been born into, be that of wealth and privilege or poverty. Or, you know, we so easily identify with our race, our gender, all of these kinds of things. And find a kind of freedom through acting differently. Now again, this is made explicit in uh, Sutta Nipata verse 651 to 3 where the Buddha says, by action you are a farmer, by action a craftsman, by action a merchant, by action a servant, by action a thief, a soldier, a priest, a ruler. In this way, the wise see action as it happens. They understand conditioned arising and understand the results of their acts. So in other words, a farmer is not born as a farmer, but a farmer is someone who acts and lives and behaves in such a way that they become a farmer or a craftsman or a merchant or a servant. So again, this is a very clear indicator of um, the Buddha's understanding of self. It's performative, as we would say today, that you are in a sense the or at least to some degree, the uh, outcome of your actions and your choices and your decisions. You form and shape your own identity in this way. So again, the, the loss of class identity or your birth conditions, instead of identifying and holding on to that, they are dissolved in this ocean of the Dhamma in such a way that you are free to act and live in such a way that you fashion your own destiny. And if you look at the next metaphor of the ocean, there are eight altogether. The next one, though, is just as the great ocean has one taste, the taste of salt, so also this Dhamma and discipline has one taste, the taste of freedom. Now this is often quoted um, to suggest that the, the taste of the Dhamma, the one taste of the Dhamma, is some sort of spiritual liberation of freedom. But again, we're looking at it out of context because the previous passage uh, describes a uh, an ocean in which, or a community really, in which class identity has been lost. And that then gives the freedom to live in another way, to define and create yourself, as is found in the Sutta Nipata passage. By contrast, 
I've included at the very bottom of the page a passage from the Mundaka Upanishad. I don't know whether this is pre-Buddhist or post-Buddhist. I suspect post, but I'm not sure. In any case, it too, um, it too utilizes the metaphor of the rivers flowing into the sea. But notice how it does it. As the flowing rivers disappear into the sea, losing their Nama Rupa, right? The Buddha doesn't say losing your Nama Rupa, your identity, your difference, but rather your social identity. Freed from name and form, freed from any sense of identity, goes to the divine person who is greater than the great. Now, whether the Buddha is deliberately reflecting on this well-known Indian metaphor and giving it another spin, I don't know for sure. But I think that's quite likely. That the idea of dissolving into the ocean is not the idea of losing your Nama Rupa, which, remember, in the Brajaranaka Upanishad, is your differentiation so people can say he is so-and-so and has such-and-such a form. In other words, the dissolving into the divine would be literally the dissolution of your identity as a person. And it's that, in a way, that self-abnegation that allows this dissolution into pure being, pure consciousness, the divine. Whereas the Buddha's use of the metaphor is really rather different. It's about the loss of caste identity, loss of social identity that enables you to flourish as a person, that gives you that freedom um, to uh, create your own life, as it were. Where are we? I think we have to stop here. Um, I hope that's more or less clear. We're going to um, now have a break for... It's now 20 past 3. Um, I'd suggest that we go outside and we do walking, uh, quiet contemplation in silence, please. And then we'll meet here again at 10 to 4, or let's say quarter to 4. A quarter to 4, and will you ring a bell, Katie, someone? So quarter to 4, a bell, and then we'll come back and we'll have a sit for about 15 minutes, and then we'll conclude with an hour of questions and answers and discussion. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.